My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Advocating for cannabis and psychedelics runs in the family for Madison Margolin. Her father is a prominent lawyer who once defended Timothy Leary. Her sister is also an attorney specializing in cannabis law. But Madison decided to go in a different direction. As a journalist and co-founder of Double Blind Magazine, she's become a leading figure in the 21st century movement around plant-based medicine. When not writing for her own magazine, She spread the word at Rolling Stone, Playboy, Tablet Vice, Mary Jane, among others. Each day brings a new study that seems to confirm what many have known all along, that far from being the killer portrayed in the war on drugs, what we today call plant-based medicine is actually good for you. Ayahuasca, MDMA, shrooms, CBD, THC, are credited with being helpful in treating everything from depression to PTSD to cancer and even COVID-19. So, Madison, welcome. Thanks for having me. So what do you think? Is it overhyped or undersold? Where are we in in the evolution of this amazing (laughs) story that's like thousands of years old? I think it's we're at the happy medium between overhyped and undersold. I think we're just right. You think we're just right right now? So what does that mean to you? You know, how does that sit in the culture? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot of hype around psychedelics right now and, you know, and cannabis too. But in regard to the FDA-approved studies that are happening, all of the, um, you know, like pharmaceutical-type companies that are popping up to offer psychedelic-based medicine, there's also the decriminalization movement. You know, and so there's a lot of excitement about it. So I would say that's the hype. And, you know, what I worry about with the hype is people thinking that psychedelics are a panacea for everything. On the flip side, you know, and the fact that it's undersold, I think still as much hype as there is in the very like niche corners of the world that I'm familiar with and that maybe you occupy as well, you know, the mainstream at large still does not know that much about psychedelics, doesn't recognize that. They're available as treatments for whatever variety of conditions. And so that's where I would say it's undersold. You know, and again, also looking to more indigenous traditions or the wisdom of people who have been using these plant medicines for however long, you know, thousands of years. I think there's a lot to look into there that people haven't even begun to scratch the surface yet. So there's an underground aspect to it, right? Like these people going out to have ayahuasca sessions and and trying shrooms and walking around and having experiences of that nature. Is that a global thing or is it primarily a youth culture as well? I think it's a global thing. You know, I think the sensation that we're seeing is like Westerners, quote unquote, like discovering ayahuasca and these types of plant medicines, but it's happening everywhere. You know, I would say it's happening all over the United States at the very least. Europeans also, you know, I have friends in, in Israel who are also doing ayahuasca ceremonies. So it's, it's pretty prolific. 
But what about everything else as well? So that includes mushrooms and MDMA, because we know recently with MDMA, there have been studies that show that it definitely has an effect on people who are suffering from trauma. Sounds magical in a way because it can heal people in a way, you know, heal quotes in a very few sessions as opposed to years of therapy, which never seems to end. Wait, sorry. So what's, what's the question? Then so the question, <laughs> uh, what was the question? Um, I'm not sure. Was there a question there? I think it was just more like a comment that as more and more people discover and there's more, you know, official recognition of something like MDMA, does that become spread globally? Does that become something that People want to try in Africa or in Asia or all these other places because everyone pretty much suffers from trauma. They say the first trauma we receive is at birth, you know, when we come out of this comfortable, <laughs> ambiotic situation and into this crazy world and start screaming right away. You know, these are substances that have been used cross culturally around the world. You can go anywhere in the world probably and try to find MDMA in an underground way or mushrooms or whatever. But I think what is happening is that people are sort of catching on to like the more above ground uses of it for trauma or, you know, whatever type of healing from anxiety or depression or whatnot, whether it's MDMA or psilocybin or whatever psychedelic we're talking about. You know, and I think a lot of that has to do with the global nature of the research that it's happening in the States and in uh, Imperial College London, and there's research going on in Israel with maps and, you know, the way that sort of the global communication works at this point is that the culture of people who are interested in psychedelics, that culture translates and transfers all over the place. I haven't been everywhere, but I can just kind of speak to like my own experience in different countries and talking to people from different places and also seeing the audience of double blind. We have people who come into our webinars from literally all over the world it kind of just shows the reach of it and the interest. Well, tell me about these webinars. What are they about and how does it work? Yeah, we host webinars twice a month through Double Blind uh, and they're on different topics. So we had something on lucid dreaming a couple weeks ago. We've had something on trauma. Um, we had something on ketamine therapy. Uh, we had the future of psychedelics with Rick Doblin this past weekend. Uh, we had Alex and Allison Gray at one point. You know, so again, like just different figures in the psychedelic world and people can join from anywhere essentially. And they are, and it's really cool to see people coming in from Australia and Germany and uh, Brazil and, you know, all of these different countries, um, and again, showing the sort of breadth of the interest. So what is the future of psychedelics? Did you come to any conclusion at that webinar? I mean, I would say that the future of psychedelics is twofold. Again, it's like in FDA approved research. So basically MDMA and psilocybin are both on the FDA fast track to become a prescription medications and assisted psychotherapy uh, early this decade. And then again, there are these other sort of startup companies that are creating uh, psychedelic based medications to treat, you know, whatever other conditions. So, you know, there's my med is looking into a medication that's based off of Ibogaine, for instance. And so then that's, so that's sort of the medical branch of things. And then the grassroots branch, I'll say, is the decriminalization movement where people are trying to remove criminal penalties for possession or growing or sale or whatever of 
of psychedelics that are either naturally occurring through the decriminalized nature movement or just psychedelics in general, which is what we've seen through Oregon's all drug decriminalization bill, and as well as uh, in California with Scott Wiener's bill to decriminalize all psychedelics. That includes the synthetics as well. Um, and I just want to add one thing as I might have misspoke. I The decrim measures decriminalize like the possession and sharing and growing of psychedelics, but not necessarily the sale. Right. So there is a, a movement as well in the growing of mushrooms, right? There's many ways people can get kits and, and learn how to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Is that unregulated or is that just sort of underground at this point? It's pretty underground. So psilocybin spores are actually legal in most states. That doesn't mean that once they spawn and become psilocybin mushrooms that they're legal, but the spores themselves are okay to possess. And so, yeah, there is a movement where people are growing their own mushrooms, taking taking that into their own hands. And it doesn't have to only be psilocybin. It could be any any type of mushroom that people are interested in growing. I've heard people say things like cannabis is a gateway crop where you know you you're interested you want to smoke weed and you want to grow it yourself and so you you start growing your own weed and then you start growing tomatoes and kale and other things um, because you get that green thumb and I think similarly um, with mushrooms too like people have this idea that they want to grow their own medicine or their own food and so whether it's psilocybin or reishi's or whatever I'm seeing a movement that people are kind of taking that back. Well, cannabis is a lot harder to grow and it takes a lot longer to than mushrooms, right? Yeah. So that's a lot faster and easier. Yeah. So what about recreational side of this? Is that something that you're, you know, advocate as well or or feel positive about as a movement? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the recreational side, quote unquote, I'd say is wrapped into the decriminalization side, but I'd say that decrim really encompasses not just people who want to use it recreationally, but also people who may not qualify to use it in a, like in a medical setting or um, people who want to use it spiritually as well as a sacrament. When I introduced you, I I mentioned your family history as part of, of your work today, but I imagine it wasn't like a straight line necessarily to where you are today from there? Were there some digressions? And how did you get around to finally accepting that this was your, this was something that you were going to continue? Yeah, I definitely thought I wanted to rebel. You know, I was always, I mean, initially I was like, okay, I guess I'll just become a lawyer like my dad and my sister and do weed law. But then I knew at that early on that by the time I would have become a lawyer, cannabis was already going to be legal at least in California, you know, now we're already seeing in New York as well, which are the two places where I have lived and bounced back and forth between. So I, I just decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. And I went to journalism school, not really knowing what I wanted to do with that degree, but that I really liked writing. You know, I, I got in, so I was like, all right, I'm going, I want to live in New York. And when I was in J school, I Every student in our intro to reporting class had to report on like an ethnic community. And so I was one of two Jews in the class. And so they gave me Hasidic Brooklyn. Um, (laughs) Typecast. (laughs) Yeah, I was definitely, I really wanted to originally do the Russians in Brighton Beach. You know, I thought that was going to be more interesting. I was like, what do I need to do? That's my hometown, Brighton Beach. I grew up. Yeah. Brighton Beach is great. I um, I have had a lot of good times there. (laughs) 
But anyway, so I got, I was given the Hasidim and I started out in Williamsburg, literally going up and down Lee Avenue, looking for people who would talk to me. I would go in and out of bakeries, like buying regalach and then like trying to talk to the guy behind the counter. And eventually I got to a kosher pizza place and this kid, um, it's it's very hard for people listening to this podcast. It's extremely hard to break into this community. Like even if you're Jewish, like you, it's like the most insular community I would say in the the world, or at least in America. Really? And so I, I met these, this kid who told me that he and his friends on the weekends would go to these side trance parties and they were sort of, what kind of parties? Side trance. What's like that? raves, they were going to rave. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and taking a lot of psychedelics. Um, uh, raves, like regular raves, like whatever with normal people. With regular yeah, people? like they were going like okay. up to New York and the Catskills during the summertime or whatever. Uh-huh. And and it was this it's co- this community of kids who are coming from these ultra orthodox backgrounds, you know, basically doing psychedelics and probably negotiating their relationship to spirituality and religion. They're not all as observant necessarily as the way they grew up. So it's this community. And I got really fascinated by it. And I wanted to know, like, when you're coming from such a religious background, like, how can religion or Judaism, like, not play into your psychedelic experience? Like, is that coming up for you when you're, when you're having all these mm. um, trips? And so that really kind of led me on this path of reporting on the kind of the intersection between Judaism and psychedelia, or, you know, like religion in altered states, you know, expanding into hinduism or or other religions as well and like the way that they use entheogens and so that has kind of been my niche within my niche and i i wrote about that when i was in journalism school and kind of just kept following the story and meanwhile ended up writing for the forward which was like my first job out of j school at a a jewish publication and then i got a job at the village voice covering the rollout of new york's medical marijuana program based on a story that I had written also in journalism school about that program. Um, Cause I was very curious about what is cannabis policy in New York look like as compared to California. Cause I had no familiarity with East coast cannabis politics. So that was kind of always, you know, this kind of um, dialectic between like the Jewish thing and the drug thing has always been how I grew up and how I built my career. So that's where, where we are now. And I've just been following it. So when you met these people, these kids in the pizza place, I assume they were young. That, yeah. that's, that's who hangs out in the pizza places usually. He was working at the pizza place. He was, oh, he was working. He was behind so, the counter. He's like 20 years old or something. And you asked him specifically about anything related to that or just somehow? No, I just was like, hey, I'm a student at Columbia Journalism School. Like what's going on in the community? Can I talk to you? He just blurted it out. No. And so he's like, okay, sure. I'll talk to you. You know, like he, like for him, like to talk to a girl, especially is, that's a whole other thing. And so I was like, I basically, he lo- it looked like he was kind of like negotiating his relationship to religion. Like he was sort of, as they say, off the derech, like off the path of, mm. of what's expected. And so I thought I was going to write a profile on him, like just kind of, you know, how, how he's navigating that. And he, he flaked on our interview. And I was like, oh, uh. crap. Like, what am I going to do now? And then we rescheduled. And when he we rescheduled, he's like, sorry about that. I had, I was at a festival and I was like, wait, like what's with the festival? Like that's, that's kind of more interesting uh, than what we were about to talk about. I'd heard about groups like this as well. Well, they would have a bus where the kids, all these Hasidic kids and their friends 
would go in there and and get high and and just like drive around town and have these parties. I actually saw some videos of of those as well. So, so yeah, there's always rebels. That bus, I think, if I know what you're talking about, is a very popular thing among a certain sect of Hasidim in Israel called the Nanachs. And they basically make this, they take these buses that look like Mary Prankster buses and they they paint them crazy and blast the trance music out of the bus and they go driving around and at stoplights, they'll get out of the bus and dance in the streets and then go back in and continue on on this joyride. The Hasidic thing is, is very ecstatic, right? They get yeah. high through their praying and dancing and music. Yeah. So this becomes kind of an extension of that or just a way to explore those experiences? From the outside, people think of black hat Jews as like very austere and oppressive and, you know, people don't fully understand it. And granted, like within the community too, it's, you know, there's a lot of that. But I think the actual genesis of the Hasidic movement is really based in like ecstatic experience of religion and like a direct relationship to the divine that doesn't need to be mediated by a rabbi or by studying text for your whole life, but you can have just kind of this direct ecstatic experience. And the group that I mentioned with the Mary Prankster bus and everything for them specifically, you know, the ultimate myths that based on the teachings of their Rebbe or, you know, kind of the, the person who the charismatic leader. Yeah, exactly is like the ultimate mitzvah is to be happy. And so they want to kind of spread that and dancing is, is part and parcel to that. So again, there's a lot of fun. Which sect is that? Um, it's called Breslov, B-R-E-S-L-O-V. And they, right. yeah, Rabbi Nachman is their, their leader. Who He's he's no longer alive, but um, that group specifically is a sect within the sect um, called the Nanach or Nanachs. That's who goes around in the bus. So do you feel that this is true for other religions as well? Do you find that uh, people turning towards this kind of psychedelic experience exists in other, whether Catholic, Protestant, Hindu, Muslim? Or- yeah, I think so. For instance, in Hinduism, the like devotees of the deity Shiva, who's the Lord of Destruction, and also said to be like the father of yoga and mind-altering substances, you know, for them, hashish or other forms of cannabis like charis is a big part of their practice. And the, the idea is that through consuming cannabis, they're able to reach Shiva consciousness. So, and again, like when you think of what is the concept of destruction, you know, it could be physical destruction, but it could also be kind of this like annihilation of the ego in a way and kind of transcending the ego, which is again, what psychedelics and cannabis can help people do is kind of dampen that part of the brain that's where the ego resides. Speaking of ego, okay, difference between now and the 60s, the first psychedelic revolution, I say this is more like psychedelic evolution, I feel like, because it doesn't seem to, you know, shake things up in the same way it did it in those days. But uh, Timothy Leary, who we mentioned earlier, his thing was turn on, tune in, and drop out. That was what we were doing, why we were taking LSD. Now it's health and wellness. So it's like, is it? It's a very different kind of marketing approach. Do you see them as as related or just total opposites or how? No, I, I think you're right to say that it's an evolution. You know, I think people give Leary a lot of slack because, like, he, you know, he did kind of propagate this turn on chin and drop out thing, but I think it was scary to most of society and turned people off to psychedelics. Ultimately, um, you know, he was this wild man and 
there was this idea that if you took acid, you were going to lose your mind. And I don't think Leary did much to, to soften the way people felt about psychedelics. But that said, you know, I, and I'm happy and excited to see psychedelics now being quote unquote marketed as these wellness tools and medicines, which they are. But I think there's sort of a fuzzy line between wellness and recreation. Like I think if you have a fun time, it can be incredibly healing and good for your wellness and just kind of, you know, helping you reset your nervous system and relax and whatever. And likewise, like if you're doing therapy with a psychedelic or in general, like it doesn't always have to be so serious all the time. And I think people talk about doing the work in psychedelics or, or whatnot. And, you know, in like our capitalistic society, when you use the word work, you sort of equate that with kind of a a hard process or drudgery or whatever. And I just want to help people recognize that doing the work quote unquote, or doing the healing doesn't necessarily have to be grueling all the time. It can also have elements of fun and lightness and lightheartedness as well. Speaking of Timothy Leary, how do you relate to him as a as an individual and person who, you know, responsible for launching all of this? You already said that you feel like he had sort of misled the people, but there was other factors involved. His story is ridiculously complicated and people still don't really even know what happened in, in many parts along the way. You know, have you studied his history or you've heard stories from in your family and acquaintances uh, about anything that could shed light on that? There was the CIA, there was that movie, My Psychedelic Love Story that Errol Mars made, which was with his wife suggesting all kinds of CIA and, and other possibilities. And also we, we know that there was a lot of government involvement in making scaring people from away from psychedelics at the same time so it wasn't just leary there was a lot more going on yeah i don't i first of all i don't think leary quote-unquote misled people but i don't think he took the most responsible approach there's a family friend who apparently was at a lecture at uc berkeley and leary was there and everyone like was given acid just like in general and this guy had a terrible trip and went off and somehow ended up in a situation where he ended up like getting physically injured, you know? And so this whole thing about like set and setting, like, which which Leary and, and Richard Albert, you know, Ramdas, whatever they first, they first wrote about that, you know, that you have to like, you have to live what you preach. Right. And so indiscriminately giving people acid and, and just being like, go off and figure it out. Like that could be really dangerous for a lot of people. But yeah, I mean, my perception of Leary, like, I think I'm more grateful to him than than not. I definitely, you know, I'm not one of these people who's trying to like sterilize psychedelic culture. And I think I'm seeing a lot of that today where people are trying to make it palatable to the people who wouldn't be interested in psychedelics otherwise. And I understand why they're doing that. And I understand why that's good marketing and why it will push forward policy or get people to like want to buy a psychedelic medicine or something like that. But I also think like in, in mainstreaming psychedelics, like why not try to get the mainstream to be more psychedelic in and of itself. Right. And like extract the values and ethos of a psychedelic and apply that into like more mainstream consciousness. You know, we saw what happened already with cannabis where 
you know, people tried to basically do the same thing, like turn cannabis into a wellness product. And cannabis culture today is like, by and large, like a shell of itself or a shadow of what it used to be in the 90s and before that, in just in terms of like the cast of characters and the the fun in it and the people who are like really devoted to the cause. And now it just kind of feels like another consumer product. Again, the culture just to me at least is a little bit less enticing than what I grew up with in LA in the 90s. So there's that. And I, and I kind of feel like psychedelics are on a similar path. And so I think that really honoring the legacy of people like Timothy Leary or others um, will kind of help preserve the culture and make it so that psychedelics don't have to be this neat thing that fits into like a pitch deck or PowerPoint or whatever, because the suits on Wall Street are going to like it better that way. You know, it's like, why should we try to like, accommodate the culture to people who weren't hip to it before and i think like if you're going to come to psychedelics come to the whole package is there a package there that fits everyone i'm thinking at one time i knew of some you know republicans and you know who were experimenting with with psychedelics and smoking weed and and wearing suits and ties this was some years ago before mm-hmm. you know everybody went casual but, you know, and it was sort of incongruous to look at them and, and think, oh, gee, they're doing this, but they're not part of the culture, which was very much anti all of that stuff. Do you feel that it's for everybody, even whatever side of the political spectrum they happen to be on, that this is something they could use as well without buying into all of the politics or the cultural stuff that traditionally is associated with it? I think that's the thing is like, there's a lot of um, cultural priming that takes place with psychedelics and and cannabis for that matter. And I don't think that's necessarily the best thing. You don't have to be a hippie. You don't have to be left-wing. You don't have to be any sort of way to take a psychedelic. I mean, granted, they're not for everybody and you have to be willing to let go a little bit in order to fully experience it and like allow whatever the psychedelic wants to show you to happen without freaking out. And so maybe people who are more liberal or whatever are more predisposed to being open in that way. But I can't say that's for certain. There was an article a few years ago about people on the alt-right taking psychedelics. And really what I've seen and like what I believe is that psychedelics just make you more you. They're not automatically going to make you a better person. It's not automatically going to make you start caring about the environment or becoming liberal or whatever. Maybe if you integrate the values of psychedelics, that might happen. You have a psychedelic trip in the forest and all of a sudden you feel connected to nature and you know you become more environmentally aware and your actions reflect that. But it doesn't happen automatically. And it's not like taking a psychedelic will change your views so much as it will change the chemistry in your brain in a way that enables you to be more open. There's actually been studies that show that people's openness, quote unquote, has increased based on psilocybin trips. So, you know, I, again, like if, whether you are left-wing or right-wing or old or young or whatever, I think anyone could have a psychedelic experience and benefit from it. And again, like get in touch with parts of themselves that they maybe were not privy to or maybe just wanted to express more strongly. And I'll say just one thing is that if you have a predisposition to something like schizophrenia or other mental condition to be more careful, 
Sure. And also the tech scene is is known to be like a, a real active zone for this kind of experimentation right now, from microdosing for just the programmers who are just, you know, sitting there working all day to the CEOs of that world who are out really tripping and and just exploring that side of themselves as well today. First with microdosing, how do you, do you feel that's a valid thing to, for using exploration or is it just like a work drug? Microdosing is a great way to get your toes wet, so to speak, dip your toes into the psychedelic space, especially for people who are afraid to get high or who do want to kind of increase their productivity or work with depression or something like that. Sometimes I say that microdosing is like the CBD of psychedelics, which, (laughs) you know, again, people kind of do that for the same reasons or similar reasons, I'll say. CBD has very specific implications that microdosing doesn't. Well, talking about these different kinds of people and and the benefits that they could get from exploring these uh, sides of themselves, I know you've spent some time in Israel, which was very influential on on your. You mentioned one time talking about the role of psychedelics in religion and conflict resolution among Israelis and Palestinians. Is that something that's really going on, or is it just like an idea? It's going on in certain corners of the psychedelic world. There's an anecdotal study that my friend Natalie Ginsberg at MAPS is doing, along with a Palestinian peace activist, Antoine Saka, and an Israeli researcher, um, Lior Roseman, who is at Imperial College London. And basically, people are sitting in ayahuasca circles together, Israelis and Palestinians. um, And then the, the researchers are interviewing them about their experience. and oftentimes like there will be this experience of the quote unquote other that someone has to reckon with while they're in ceremony. So, you know, one anecdote was a woman who felt triggered by Arabic, I think in general. And then there was a Palestinian woman, woman sitting next to her who started praying in Arabic and like how, how this Jewish woman had to like sort of just reconcile that within herself and see that this woman next to her was praying and that like, she was also hurting and, you know, just kind of having that type of empathy available within that context. Of course, the type of people who are electing to sit in the mixed Israeli-Palestinian group are already probably more open-minded. MAPS does have also MDMA research happening in Israel for the use of PTSD. And I would love to see a world where MDMA for PTSD therapy is available for Israelis and Palestinians. You know, the promise of psychedelics in the region is sort of taking the psychedelic ethos and the principles of psychedelic healing therapy and trying to make that more central to the conversation. You know, I don't I don't think there is a fair way to have a conversation about Israel and Palestine without talking about PTSD as front and center. And like for both parties, right? For all. Yeah, for everybody. Like I've said before, this isn't about being like pro-Israel or anti-Israel or pro-Palestine or anti or whatever. It's just, I'm just anti anything that causes continued trauma. And so how can the political paradigm reorient around that rather than this kind of ridiculous binary that they keep going back and forth against? Because that's not working. Yeah, they just got to get all of the world leaders over there in a, into a session of ayahuasca. They, they have to do it. You know, yeah, sort of uh, force them into a room, uh, mm-hmm. you know, figure it out, folks. Here, we're going to help <laughs> you do it. 
<laughs> you know, I find it something interesting in a way. I don't know if, if, if it means anything, but that their women are getting involved in this, especially magazines around these subjects. So we have Double Blind, we have Gossamer with Farina and Anya Charbonneau with Broccoli. It's unusual from my experience to find, you know, women startups in publishing anyway. But now that it's happening, it's happening in this particular zone. Can you draw any conclusions around that? Or is women leading in this category now? Yeah. I mean, I think women, um, you know, like why are women leading? Like what's like the question being like, just what, what's, what of it? Well, what of it? And especially in this space. When I think of all the psychedelic pioneers of the sixties, quote unquote, you know, and again, I don't want to paint a picture as if like psychedelics became a thing only in the sixties. Like these have been held by traditions in indigenous cultures for long before that. But when I think of like the, that initial renaissance of psychedelic culture, you know, you think of Ram Dass and Timothy Leary and Allen Ginsberg and Albert Hoffman and Sasha Shulgin. And you don't really think of a lot of women. When I think of indigenous culture and psychedelics, I think of Maria Sabina. She's probably the most obvious person. She's a curandera or like a mushroom shaman in Mexico who introduced the West or Westerners to psychedelics. And that kind of spawned the whole, again, the psychedelic revolution that I just referred to. Um, and that was through mycologist R. Gordon Wasson, who did mushrooms in Mexico. And then Leary did mushrooms in Mexico. And then we know how, the, how that transpired. But today, I think it's interesting to sort of like take the reins away from like this cast of upper middle class white dudes and kind of disperse it um, among other people. So it's not just women who are kind of taking psychedelic culture and owning it and helping to reimagine it or recreate it in a way, but also people of color. You know, there's a there's an interesting account online called on Instagram, Black People Trip which I think is just such a good, cute way of putting it. And that like, again, psychedelics, people think of like white hippies and they don't necessarily think all the time of all the other people who are using psychedelics or could benefit from psychedelics. And I think expanding the way that we think of the psychedelic community is also good for the research in that therapists who are studying trauma and want to use psychedelics for trauma also need to you know, have some level of cultural competency and ideally there would be more therapists of color being trained and more like non-binary people being trained to deal with and address all the ways that people are traumatized based on their identities or their experiences and not just kind of, you know, what people think of with PTSD, which is like a veteran who goes to war, which again is like totally valid. And that's a huge sector of society that needs to get help. But, you know, that's, it's so much broader than that as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, stories of abuse are just legion. I mean, it's so common we finding out today that people, you know, never mentioned it or didn't even know themselves that what they'd experienced was what we call abuse today. But that was child rearing once upon a time that people just that's how they did it. And nobody really thought about it. And it's still going on in many places of the world, uh, you know, every day. And that's something that we pass on to the next generation ourselves. So if we've been through it, so, you know, that's something we really need to, to figure out a way to stop or stop passing it on, at least, even if we can't quite figure out how to cure ourselves. 
mm-hmm. along the way, or maybe that's the only way to do it. But yeah. uh, Madison, thank you so much. I've wanted to have you on my show for so long. As you know, I've been chasing after you <laughs> all around the world. So <laughs> I'm happy we finally got a chance to talk. I'm not disappointed. Yeah, this was great. It definitely was worth the wait. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks for being on my show, Madison Margolin. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.